0: Everybody knows that it's now or never Now
1: broadcasting from Vancouver, British Columbia, Cocktail Hour with Stuart Parker returns to the series of twos. Yes, we've been cancelled by CFIS Radio in Prince George. We've been cancelled by CFUR. And then, for those paying attention, we were run out of town on a rail... By a coalition of pro-fracking greens, local newspaper editor, and uh, racist thugs. So here we are in Vancouver. They've tried to shut us down every which way, but here we are, still broadcasting, still speaking the truth. Joining me on the line from uh, Nova Scotia is Scott Costin, an independent socialist journalist, uh, broadcaster, uh, former military, uh, now doing political analysis and reporting from his uh, uh, web platform, The Sidebar. uh, And uh, it's, uh, it's been uh, several conversations that we've had over the years about various things. Uh, you're certainly the person who got me into um, this, uh, some of this podcasting racket and the like. So first of all, welcome to Cocktail Hour.
0: Yeah, Great to be here, Stuart. All right.
1: So we're not doing cocktails, but we are having a nice beverage. Uh, do you care to tell our listeners what beverage you've selected?
0: Uh, Yes, I've got a a nice local beer from, I'm based in Enfield, Nova Scotia. I've got a great beer from the the South Shore here in Nova Scotia. It's the Perfect Pint Best Bitter from Boxing Rock Brewery in lovely Shelburne, Nova Scotia.
1: Well, uh, I did try to see if uh, BC liquor stores carried it, but uh, sadly, no. The uh, it has not yet reached this side of the country. Uh, anyway, cheers! I'm uh, I'm slumming it with some
0: uh, Lucky Lager. Always a good choice. Always a good choice.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I guess to begin, you. Uh, I think we encountered each other when you were working with uh, some British folks on something called redaction politics. And then um, you moved on and have been building uh, your uh, your own platform at the sidebar. I thought I'd ask how the sidebar is doing and what it's been covering lately.
0: Well, the sidebar is a, a relatively niche site at the moment. And uh, partly that's the result of me not being very ambitious at at promoting it, but uh, essentially, what it is is uh, it's a, a place where I can publish stories that uh, you probably won't see elsewhere. I'm focusing primarily on news, opinion, uh, also reviews of uh, books and music, uh, and I'm going to actually as a new feature, I'm going to be doing some history uh, beginning this month. And I typically, in, in terms of politics, I'm looking at progressive or left-wing politics uh, opinion. It could it could be anything, and uh, reviews, primarily reviews of things that would be of interest to people of uh, you know a, a left of center orientation. Um, I think that it's it's uh, it's not been a, a, a huge endeavor thus far. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm someone who uh, has a lot of things on the go, but I would like to try to devote more time to it this year and hopefully grow a a larger audience.
1: Yeah, I have, uh, I've found there isn't a lot of, uh, good socialist news coverage coming out of Nova Scotia. So every little bit helps. Um, now one of the things that it seems like will be on your docket will be the race to replace Gary Burrell, uh, and, uh, as leader of the Nova Scotia NDP. I had a real soft spot for Gary. Uh you know he was not always the most brilliant communicator, but um what are things looking like now that um, he's moving on?
0: Well, yes, Gary Burrell uh, has stepped down. You know, the, the party, the Nova Scotia NDP has uh, you know, had some pretty disappointing results the last few elections uh since they uh surprised everyone and formed a, a majority government. Um, so Gary Burrell stepped down after the last election in the summer uh, where the NDP won six seats, which was a one seat increase from what they had going into the election, but it was a one seat decrease from what they had won in the previous election. Um, Gary Burrell, as you said, is a very bright guy. Um, I think he was by far the most qualified candidate uh, as a party leader but the packaging was all wrong for today's political environment you know he's he's not the master of the sound bite although he, he does come up with the odd zinger um but he he just doesn't have that that kind of charisma um you know that that we're looking for uh apparently these days in, in leadership um the other thing is he was really let down too by his uh his campaign staff, I, I did a piece in the sidebar that was both uh, praised and, uh, and <laughs> you know, reviled about how the, uh, every single day along the campaign, uh, where the other leaders, the liberal and conservative leaders were, you know, leaping off of campaign buses and, and glad handing and lots of movement and dynamism and energy, uh, for some reason, the, the NDP had their leader sitting at park benches and picnic tables, uh, just always seated. And um, so it's, it's, it's a shame in a way, because he, he was the last of the, the great, uh, you know, kind of Christian socialists in, in, uh, in uh, NDP politics, the last one I'm aware of, at least. Um, I think he deserved a better fate, but just the, as I said, the packaging just wasn't right. The communications weren't right and the optics weren't right to, uh, to make him saleable to the, uh, to the public. So now we've got a, uh, a new, uh, a leadership race. The, the rules of it have just been announced. And I did an article in the sidebar a couple days ago, just outlining how the race is going to be conducted and what the timelines will be.
1: So uh, just before we leave Gary Burrell, uh, I remember his um, his closing argument in his first leaders debate uh, brought me to tears. I, I was absolutely blown away by the way he talked about, it was just this very simple story that sounded hackneyed and cliched and yet was obviously true. Uh, this story of his grandfather talking to him about all the great social programs that will exist uh, when he was, when he would go on to be his grandfather's age, and what he would be talking to his his grandchildren about, and then he just said, "But we don't talk to our grandchildren that way anymore," and it it placed him in this category for me with um, these older politicians, Corbyn, Sanders, Swanson out here in Vancouver, whose political, whose ability to touch people had a lot to do with the fact that they simply remembered a different past when we had different expectations and when the horizon of possibility was different. And so I have to ask, is there was there any element of the problems that Corbyn faced? Um, do you think his campaign staff actually wanted him to do well? Or do you think there were elements of people phoning it in because it was going to get rid of Gary Burrell.
0: Oh, I, I do believe that a lot of the NDP upper crust in Nova Scotia are ecstatic that, uh, that Gary Burrell is announced he's stepping down. Um, there are a lot of people who have said that, you know, the party needs to have a woman leader. Um, I think they, they've, I mean, there's, there's some, uh, you know, some of his own staff have, have, you know, gone on social media saying, you know, we need to get rid of a, our white male leader. Um, but our white male leader is better than the other guy's white male leaders. So I guess he's okay until we can replace him with, with someone, uh, from a more desirable demographic. Um, but I think there was a genuine, uh, affection for Gary Burrell among a lot of the, the party. Um, he just, it's almost like he was too smart for his own good. And he was, he was too well read into too many issues for his own good. Um, but the, the, the campaign was confused. I mean, Tim Houston, who won, uh, the cons- pro- progressive conservative leader who won a, uh, a real kind of an upset uh, majority against the governing liberals, albeit with a new liberal premier, um, he focused exclusively exclusively on healthcare. It was just everything was healthcare is broken. We're going to fix it everywhere he went. That was his his messaging and his and his mantra. Gary Burrell was on a different thing every day. Uh, even the first day of the campaign, when he was asked, you know, what is this election about, he he couldn't really define it um, in in a simple manner. And uh, and that just leaves you from a communications point of view. At a, at a huge disadvantage.
1: Now, you mentioned this upset win, and it certainly surprised those of us who'd seen uh, COVID magnifying the advantage of incumbency, that um, so many governments increased their majorities simply by holding elections during uh, the pandemic. Uh, many governments rushed to the polls somewhat irresponsibly in order to uh, in order to get a majority under their belts while uh, while they had a chance, um, and so I I wanted to ask about the the politics of COVID. Right, that you know there was um, the Atlantic provinces were so much closer to the COVID zero policies of China or New Zealand, uh, very different from the rest of the country. And so, given the really sterling performance of the governments in the Atlantic, uh, we were all stunned out west uh, by um, by the defeat. Why do you think it is that the um, that the formula failed in Nova Scotia?
0: It actually boils down to a to a pretty simple um, explanation, Stuart. Uh, if Stephen McNeil, who had been the prime minister for, or sorry, the premier for a number of years, and who had led the the initial year uh, or so into COVID, if he had remained in the premier seat and if he was running for re-election, I have no doubt he actually would have won quite handily. As soon as Stephen McNeil uh, announced he was retiring from politics, that changed the equation entirely. Uh, the liberals, for whatever reason, had very few strong candidates emerge to replace uh, McNeil, even though the, the prize was, you know, an instant uh, place in the premier seat. And Ian Rankin, who won the, the leadership process for the liberals, he just turned out to be an extremely uh, weak leader. He was saddled with, you know, some a couple of uh, uh, or one criminal conviction for drunk driving that had never been con- uh, disclosed another arrest that had never uh, for drunk driving that had never been um uh disclosed he wasn't a good communicator and at, at a certain point um you know you could really feel the ground shifting and in the last week or so of the campaign uh the the liberals weren't even making rank and available to to media so that you really you understood the the depth of of, of their, uh, uh, their woes and, and also just how uh, desperate they were to, to try to stop the bleeding from someone who was clearly in way, way over his head. So um, the, the short answer uh, is that Stephen McNeil's retirement changed everything and allowed the conservatives who admittedly ran a great campaign Uh, But they they wouldn't have had a shot, I don't think, if McNeil had had been in that race.
1: Now, obviously, we're we're talking about these different party affiliations. Um, But, you know, right now in British Columbia, there's a leadership race going on to become leader of Her Majesty's loyal opposition. And the frontrunner, Kevin Falcon, um, cut his teeth in politics 20 years ago, running a process called Core Review for the Gordon Campbell government. It was a radical austerity program that led to 70% cuts in child protection uh, and just horrific, horrific consequences of austerity. He held the title of Minister of Deregulation. Uh, and, um, he was backed by intellectuals from the taxpayer movement, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and they're, uh, you know, based out of their head office in, uh, in Sweden. And, um, so the sense was that Falcon coming on the scene would, um, would, uh, would alter, uh, what had been going on in BC politics, which was that, um, the NDP, once they were elected in 2017, essentially proceeded with all of the BC Liberals' policies. They threw out their own policy book and proceeded with the, uh, uh, an agenda of regime continuity. And that's largely what Andrew Wilkinson promised in the last election and was hammered, but not hammered for that, but hammered because of big tax cuts he proposed. So he was going to indebt the province and that, that really hurt him. Shirley Bond became the interim uh, leader of the party, and she had won her own riding on a zero contrast campaign. Her main public appearances were showing up at ribbon cuttings for projects the government had completed. Uh, And she's had almost no criticism of the government during her time as interim leader. Kevin Falcon came along and his platform is to proceed with all of the promises the NDP made in 2017 that they haven't fulfilled, in particular $10 a day childcare. And so uh, here, BC, Alberta, we're dealing with essentially zero contrast party systems uh, where there's a clear agenda that's going forward and elections and votes have almost no effect on it. And I'm wondering with the disappearance of Gary Burrell, um, if Nova Scotia is starting to converge on a similar kind of policy consensus, or is there somebody in the NDP who might constitute a a, a contrast? That's
0: that's an excellent question. I, I mean, I think, in in the case of the Nova Scotia NDP, the only person that has thus far indicated an interest in running for the leadership is the MLA for Dartmouth South, which is a lady named Claudia Chender. Now Chender is uh, really the darling of kind of the woke urban elite of the NDP, which is really the bulk of the party at this point. They don't have much going on in in rural Nova Scotia. Um, I don't think she'd be much of a, a departure from uh the liberal what the Liberal Party's been doing lately, or even to be honest, the Progressive Conservative Party. I, I don't know if you will see more than one candidate come forward for the NDP uh leadership, which would, would be, in my opinion, a disaster for the party because then you're you lose the energy, you lose the fundraising, you lose the, the media attention. You lose the exchange of ideas and opportunities to to gain new members. Um, You have to remember, too, in this province that it's not the conservative party of Nova Scotia. It's the progressive conservative party of Nova Scotia. And it really is quite different. Uh, You know, the the people in the PC party of Nova Scotia uh, would, I think the vast majority of them, would find themselves hard pressed to support anything like the UCP uh, or, or anything like that. I mean, they're, they're not uh, most of them, at least they're not social conservatives. Um, They're, they're, they're not uh, far to the uh, far removed from the center, you know, they're, they're center, right. But, but they're, they're really kind of, a lot of them are red Tories. Um, and, And if you look at what. Tim Houston has done, you know, to your point, he's done things that the NDP has been calling for from the the liberals in the last number of years. So he's ending street checks and he's, he's, um, you know, he's doing a lot of really quote unquote progressive things. Um, He's put a stop to rent evictions. He's put a stop to, um, you you know, uh, or he's, he's, Putting keeping in place temporary rent control measures for a prolonged period of time. He just gave a a significant boost to the minimum wage. So it's almost as if he is within, it's only been, uh, I think, six months now since he's taken office, thereabouts. He's already taken away three or four planks that either the Liberals or the NDP would have been hammering with.
1: Right. So... um... I guess this this raises a larger question of what some people who are you know critics of the identitarian left talk about as capture, that our political system is effectively um, captured by a certain consensus, a certain um, cross partisan consensus, and it's difficult to find expression outside of that. And obviously, we, we've been seeing over the past week um, a manifestation from the right of the exclu- of the exclusion from that consensus with the um, uh, truckers in Ottawa. And I wanted to ask your opinion, because obviously, this is um, split the left on pretty familiar grounds now. Uh that you have a sort of an older materialist left that um, is not exactly in support of the truckers, but is sympathetic. And then you have a newer identitarian left uh, that sees the this convoy as uh, Um, essentially the same as the bumpkin push in the U.S., that, you know, they're going to bring in their shaman and shoot up parliament. And um, I I wanted your perspective, because as you say, there isn't this, the culture that this movement comes out of in the West doesn't find a clear parallel in Nova Scotia. But I, I wanted your sense from looking from the East at this, what does this trucker thing look like, and what's your take on it?
0: Well, I begin by saying, you know, there have been uh, supporters of the the truckers that have both gone to gone to Ottawa, um, but also there have been. I know, I in in Sydney on Cape Breton Island, uh, there have been many uh, support protests for them there also. So there there is a certain number of people here that, that support their, their aims and objectives. And interestingly, Tim Houston, the premier has brought in legislation or an order rather that would ban blockades on the highways. So it's something that, that he's responded to quite forcefully. My own take is that, you know, I, I, you mentioned I'm a, I'm a veteran and I was quite upset to see uh, some of the, the things that were occurring on and, and around the National uh, War Memorial in Ottawa, I was upset to see people try to co-opt the legacy of, of Terry Fox, um, certainly seeing swastikas or Confederate flags, that's that's upsetting and offensive, but that's not everyone that's there. And that's not the primary impulse of this movement, as I understand it. Um, I have a certain amount of sympathy for the group as a whole. I certainly don't con- condone the individual acts that I just mentioned, but there's a frustration and an alienation uh, that people are feeling. And I tend to think, you know, most of these people that are at that protest most of the people that are sharing canada proud memes and most of these people that have become canada's version of the the basket of deplorables are from the working class and as such they're a failure uh of of the ndp or other left-wing parties as much as anything else because they've they feel disenfranchised they feel unrepresented um you know, I spent almost four years living in Liverpool, Nova Scotia, on the south shore, and it's a it's a community where, you know, you once you had a once thriving mill that shut down, and there's a lot of people there that, uh, uh, you know, are are very economically marginalized. They don't fit any of the criteria we use today to describe people who are marginalized except by economics. Um, but they're completely forgotten. They're completely forgotten. They're completely neglected. No one's representing them. And the NDP in Nova Scotia, uh, five of its seats are in urban or suburban Halifax or Dartmouth uh, or Metro Halifax, if you will. Uh, one's in, in Cape Breton. But the party is, is, is absolutely uh nowhere in the rural parts of this province. Um in fact there was one of the you know the I think one of the first stories I wrote for the sidebar was uh a, a, about a gentleman who had been the MLA in in uh for the Liverpool area Queen Shelburne when I first moved there uh he, he was uh uh Sterling is his name and he was a NDP MLA he was a fisherman Uh, he was from, uh, Shelburne County and he, you know, served a a couple of terms, I believe and, and stepped down, uh, and the, the Tories won the, the riding back, but he, uh, took such exception to the way that, uh, Jagmeet Singh and the federal NDP and Gary Burrell and the provincial NDP had painted all fishermen in Nova Scotia as racists that he quit the party and he actually ran for the conservative, progressive conservative nomination in, in, uh, in Shelburne. So what drives someone, you know, a former NDP parliamentarian to denounce his own party and run for, you know, two, two doors to the right run for them, for the, for their nomination. Uh, certainly there were some, uh, racist, violent, aggressive, boorish, non-native fishermen that were, uh, uh, feuding or, or attacking indigenous fishermen, but to paint every single fisherman along the South shore as a racist, uh, this is not the way you build coalitions. This is not the way you represent, uh, uh, poor and economically, uh, marginalized people. And it's certainly not the way you attract votes or win power.
1: It is curious that it strikes me that modern progressivism is, actually has a problem with coalitions as coalitions, that, it's, that coalition politics is really contrary to, uh, what, to, to, to the politics of people who are progressive. I, I remember in um, the last electoral reform referendum in BC, um, a poll came in showing that uh, the support for proportional representation had fallen among BC Liberal supporters, right wingers, uh, by twenty percent. And the response of the chairman of the referendum committee, who was a progressive, was, "Well, we have to brand this more heavily as an NDP Green initiative. That the problem was that the votes we were getting were from the wrong people. That." they had tainted our votes by, by being part of the coalition. And I, I find it, I find this a, a really curious, I mean, it seems a politically insane turn, but it's also a curious cultural turn. The idea that having support from the wrong people is somehow a political flaw or a political error. And um, given that that, that um, you know progressives still want to win elections, um, I wonder how has this how has this come to become a cultural assumption that there that it's not just about a personal or individual purity; it's about a purity of the voter base that one is seeking to attract.
0: Well, I, you know, Stuart, I think one of, the, one of the least discussed but most important studies in, that I've seen in the last number of years came out in November, and it was a joint report by Jacobin Magazine, YouGov, and I can't re- remember the exact name. I think it's called the Center for Working Class Politics or something like that in the U.S. They they basically did this study and they're trying to figure out how do we build an effective uh, coalition uh, centered around the working class that can, that can you know, win power and make change and do all the things that people on the left uh, presumably want to do. And it is, it, it's just, I, I guess the reason it hasn't been talked about nearly as much is because it's, it's an inconvenient truth For people who choose identity over class and, um, you know, uh, who choose, um, you know, these uh, individual characteristics over um, universal ones and things of that nature. So, for example, in that study, uh, they said that uh, they found that working class voters want politicians to focus on bread and butter issues. And they want them to focus on them, not in niche or identity ways, but in universal ways. They found that progressives uh, or working class people are very happy to talk about social justice. But again, the language that you speak to them in is incredibly important. And that if you make it sound like it's only about these people, but not these people, uh, they tend to tune out um here here's i've actually brought it up on, on my on my computer here um from the executive summary progressives do not need to surrender questions of social justice to win working class voters but certain identity focused rhetoric is a liability they also found working class voters prefer working class candidates wow what a revelation Have we ever, you know, I I can tell you exactly how many of the NDP candidates in the last election were uh, racialized or female or gender nonconforming. I can't tell you if any of them, I I know some of them were, but I, I can't tell you how many were working class because they don't keep that information. Um, well, in,
1: in British Columbia, the NDP is actually more extreme in this direction. One of my debates with the former president of the party, Craig Keating, was right. there was a non-refundable fee for seeking the NDP's permission to seek a nomination on the party's behalf. And there were all these rules about equity-seeking groups. And I said, well, are, are, are working class people an equity-seeking group? And they said, no absolutely not. So, but, you know, you're, you're putting this this fee in, this actually cuts working class people out. And, uh, and the response was, you know, if you don't have $5,000 on hand, uh, you don't have your life together. Uh, why would we run a candidate who doesn't have their life together? And uh, it was really interesting. So it's not merely that, I think it's not merely that progressive parties are more interested in other forms of marginalization than class, there's a sense that um, working class people are unqualified to represent themselves. And, you know, you, you, it's, it's an interesting journey, right? To get from there to there. But on the other hand, the Republicans are the party of Lincoln. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure why it should surprise us how much a political party can change, and I guess that that's it. Sounds to it sounds to me is that you don't have a lot of hope for the NDP. Is it that that um, I, I've been struggling with this question myself? How does one practice working class politics and the environment of Canada's captured political system? Uh, do we give up on electoralism? Do we engage in organized entryism like the Sanders people? Um, do we try to build a working class political party from the ground up? Where, where, it seems like these, you know, it doesn't really matter which of the larger parties they are. They've gotten away from us. So so how, how does one respond constructively?
0: I mean, the, these are excellent and very uh, you know, complicated questions. I, I think, you know, for me, I, I hope does spring eternal. I always hope that people will come to their, their, their senses and that we will re-embrace what I believe in perhaps more than anything else is egalitarianism. And we've lost that, um, that sense that, uh, we may have individual differences, of course, Uh, we, we may all, every person has something or some things in their, in their life that differentiate themselves from the others that pose challenges in their lives that may have held them back or, 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 or caused them to, um, you know, to be a subject of oppression at some point. But unless we agree that everyone's um, of equal value and everyone's, of equal worth in terms of their ability to contribute to a collective action i don't know where where we're going to wind up but on 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 that question of of the political expression of this steward i would say and it's i i almost hesitate to bring this up but it, it, it is really an interesting example in the great in great britain uh george galloway who there are many many things you can say about George Galloway and there there are many critiques of him and I have some critiques of him also but he's a very interesting guy and he has I think a, a more um I I would say he has a a really great outlook on what is needed politically from a you know socialist politics uh needs to be class based right, and and he has started the workers party of great Britain. And basically in a nutshell, what they are is socialism without woke, uh, excesses. Right. You know, they, they basically say, you know, we, we want to work with, uh, you know, unions. We want to work with, uh, all facets of labor. We want to advance the material interests of the common person um, we will fight for every underdog. We will not be in any way discriminatory. We will fight discrimination. We will fight hatred. We will fight racism. All these things. But what they will not do is be captured, as you know, to use your term, is be captured by that orthodoxy, you know, in a manner that suffocates their raison d'être, which is advancing the cause of socialism.
1: Right, yeah, no. Galloway is a fascinating figure, and I feel like, um, I mean, I think he's a little easier to understand in the country that made Doctor Who, because <laughs> um, <clears throat> because I think I've I've witnessed in my time of political awareness three different incarnations of George Galloway, and um, I've got to say, the second version of George Galloway was pretty fucking awful. He was uh, when he went after that uh, labor candidate over whether like being sold as a child bride at sixteen to a violent man was like well I, I mean that that was insane.
0: That's why I said that. I. That's why I said <laughs> I I was I was somewhat hesitant to bring it up, but I think if if, if we can. We can look at the the party that he's he, he's he's been trying to build. Um, that's really where my interest lies in terms of its its orientation. I don't know that we can ever go back to that here. I think that it's uh it's something that uh, may be beyond our grasp, and it, it may take just repeated um, electoral disappointments for the NDP and, and the green party and any other leftist parties that come along that it, it may take something like that for people to finally, you know, clue into the fact that, you know, how do people actually speak at home? The language that is being used is, is insane. It, it doesn't reflect in any way. Uh, you know, I, I, grew up in the East end of Hamilton Uh, It's mostly, you know, steel workers and other industrial workers and, and just, you know, regular people. Uh, They, they, they don't, if you ask them uh, some of the, uh, the, the questions that, that, that are asked on Twitter or, or at, uh, at certain, uh, you know, meetings and things like that, like they, they don't know what it even means. Like, what are your pronouns? I, I, I don't think my my family back in Hamilton would even know what the heck people were asking them about. I mean, they, they don't even know what that means. Um,
1: well, yeah. But- and, and I mean, that's also somewhat intuitive because the idea that you own how other people talk about you when you're not there is a very weird idea. So, yeah. And, and, they're,
0: but, and at the same time, I mean, they're very respectful of people who are different, people who have. Uh, you know, I mean, we're not talking about and, and again, it's not it should never be pitting one group against the other. But just as an example of how the language has gotten so far ahead of where regular people are at, uh, it's 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 really just seems to me from a strategic point of view uh, to, to, to not make any sense whatsoever. And also to remember the vast majority of Canadians, I don't know the percentage, I think it's 75 or 80 percent. They're not on Twitter. They they don't have Twitter accounts. They have no idea when you when you bring up these things. They have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, they're too busy worrying about taking the kids to the hockey game, uh, paying the bills. Uh, you know, all the 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 you know the lawnmower broke down or the snowblower needs. It's, it's just things like that. They're they're just trying to get by with their daily lives. They don't need to be hectored and harangued about um, things that you know, really don't impact on their daily lives.
1: Yeah, it is true. There, there is a, there's a tremendous disconnect. You briefly mentioned um, the Greens and, uh, and their experiences. And I, I wanted to ask um, right in uh, uh, when looking at Atlantic Canada and its politics it's quite strange from the West because you have the two provinces where the greens are the most popular and successful in the country in PEI and New Brunswick. And then adjacent to them, you have the two provinces where the greens are the least successful in the country. And I, I'm interested in your take on the lack of green penetration into Nova Scotia, into your part of Nova Scotia, why is it that um, the most urban of the Atlantic provinces is the the least interested in um, uh, the Greens as a potential alternative?
0: I mean, at the provincial level, it's it's uh, it's actually it can be explained quite simply that the provinces uh, that you mentioned, PEI and New Brunswick, where the Greens have taken hold and done extremely well, uh, especially in PEI right now, is where the NDP failed to ever gain any kind of substantial foothold. Uh, whereas here in Nova Scotia, as I mentioned, the, the NDP's has been a force here in, in very small numbers, but it's, it's been around for a long time, way back to the CCF days, they were electing people. Um, they formed government at one point. Um, Newfoundland and Labrador is a bit different. They've obviously never had a a new democratic government, but they've had NDP MHAs for a number of years, but, uh, PEI to my knowledge has never elected an NDP MLA. Um, There was just the one once was there. Okay. Yeah. And and he
1: was defeated mainly because he was the uh, only doctor in the ride, the only family doctor in the ride and people (laughs) defeated him because they wanted their doctor back.
0: Yeah. And, and new Brunswick, uh, they've had a few, but it's, it's really, and, and in fact, one of the current cabinet ministers in the Higgs conservative or progressive conservative government in, in new Brunswick is the former leader of the NDP in that province. So, um, it's it It seems to me that's part of what's behind it now federally um you know Jenica atwin's uh victory as a green was remarkable um but she had the entire provincial green machine behind her and and was successful now here in nova scotia the greens did uh have done okay in a few ridings but I, I don't think the greens are ever going to break through here in Nova Scotia provincially and, uh, federally it's, it's a, it's probably a, a long shot, but it just owes to the fact that the NDP has been relatively strong and has been pretty good at, um, representing environmental issues. So the last or, Two federal elections ago, there was a strong candidate, uh, an eco-socialist named Emma Norton, who, uh, you know, was really strong, uh, but she was up against a tough liberal incumbent. But she really, she used to say, you know, it, she could have gone either way, green or NDP, but she saw the NDP as the best vehicle because she could she could kind of do both, whereas the green was just the environmental party. Uh, the NDP, it could be the eco-socialist party. Uh, at least as she saw it, you know, at that time a few years ago. So um, you
1: uh, so we have sort of this um, uh, this pretty vanilla political system that's uh, that's going on here. We mentioned some other alternative possible models of mobilization with um, uh, people like Galloway. Uh, we've talked a bit about the experience of working class voters. Uh, one of the things I find interesting, striking Canadian politics, is that um, uh, we don't often hear things from veterans' perspectives, veterans' interests. And I've begun, you know, sort of considering that, um, especially when we look at the rural West and where that trucker convoy came from, uh, right, it's the most. It, it's really uh, the most Métis areas that uh, you um, that we see. Right, a largely invisible minority. Um, a lot of what we refer to as the white working class of Canada are Métis people living in historically Métis communities, uh, and we see you know overrepresentation in the prison system overrepresentation in precarious and industrial work, and significant overrepresentation in the military. And I wanted to ask uh, by not having veterans as a default part of the conversation, as one would in the United States. Um, what perspectives uh, do you think Canadian politics is missing? What do you think per- perspectives? efforts at working class politics might be missing by that not being a constituency we think of?
0: Well, I would say that, you know, the general public as a whole um, has a relatively poor understanding of who is in the military, who uh, veterans are, you know, what they think, what their experiences have been. But as far as progressive people or left wing people uh or or political organizations um there is probably nothing on which the left is more clueless than the experience of of canadian veterans uh they speak as if they are experts and they really know very very little in in, in many cases um, veterans are not all Default conservatives, they uh, generally speaking have joined the military for for two reasons: one, uh, a sense of uh, service, of of duty, of patriotism, whatever. Uh, but in many cases, too, in a lot of cases, uh, economic necessity. So you mentioned Métis people, um, Atlantic Canadians are massively overrepresented in the military and they're not from Halifax and Moncton and St. John's, you know, they're, they're, they're from Yarmouth and, uh, you know, Campbellton and, uh, Pooch Cove or someplace like that. Like they're, they're from smaller places. They're from places where, uh, there are, there aren't many opportunities. And, uh, so, so really, Whatever you consider a person in the military, whether you consider them working class or not, the vast majority of them are from working class backgrounds. Um, They're not monolithic in their opinions any more than the black community or the trans community or any community. there's, There's all kinds of different people. Some of the most ardent socialists I know are veterans. And that... Point of view is informed in a lot of ways by their experience. I served in Afghanistan. I've seen grinding poverty. I've seen, uh, you know, the just obscene amounts of inhumanity. Um, I've seen the, um, the result, you know, the, the, the just, uh, just the horrific result of Canada being beholden to, U S foreign policy. And that's why, so for example, in my case, I'm an ardent uh, supporter of getting Canada the hell out of NATO. Um, But no one's ever really spoken to me about that. No one's spoken to me really about uh, anything to do with, um, you know, I, I, I think that we're missing an opportunity with veterans to give them a chance because what they what they were driven by more than anything was a sense of of camaraderie a sense of belonging a sense of mission uh, and a desire to do something positive it doesn't always work out so in my case I thought Afghanistan was a noble mission to help women and girls um, it didn't really turn out any at all to be what I thought it was going to be. Um, but you've got people out there that if you treat them with respect, have a lot to offer and they can be more radical than you would ever believe for every, um, you know, right-wing veteran who, who, uh, you know, loves Canada proud memes and, and loves uh, Maxine Bernier and that there's a veteran out there who, who, Wishes Canada had a Bernie Sanders and and uh, wants to get involved in in uh, some kind of anti-war protest. So I would just say, talk to us. We're not monolithic, and some of our views would surprise you. And we can be a real asset to political parties and politicians and community groups and and activist causes. <laughs>
1: And I, I mean, I, I certainly witnessed that in, you know, I spent some time living in the U.S. I've been more connected to U.S. politics than a lot of my friends. And um, yeah, I, I had a friend in the U.S. who uh, also a veteran from Afghanistan. And um, it, when he went to Afghanistan, he came out of rural Texas. He was a far right conservative evangelical. And one of the things that shifted so much in the position of both people still serving and in terms of veterans uh, in the U.S. was originally Ron Paul's intervention running on an anti-war platform for the Republican nomination. And there was a massive shift to Ron Paul. He won um, among all kinds of uh, groups of he did OK with veterans, but for people who were serving at the time, he was the most popular candidate in those primaries. And many of those people, like Tommy, went on to support Bernie Sanders, that the Ron Paul campaign had pried them loose. And it, And then there was this new horizon of possibility because Sanders did campaign with people who were serving. He did campaign with um with veterans, they were part of that coalition. And it is interesting to think of all of the constituencies of people in Canada that um, are sitting outside the discourse simply because there isn't an effort to communicate, there isn't an effort to, um, to organize. And, um, you know, it, uh, it is pretty disconcerting if you if you were to um,
0: you know, Stuart, offer, I just say yeah. I I would just say one thing there. Part of the problem I think is that everyone assumes the veteran community votes the same way that, that every every veteran votes conservative. So why bother? And that and nothing right. could be, nothing could be further from the truth. Who helped bring down Stephen Harper? It was yes. the A, it was the ABC veterans, many of whom were active out here. But I I think that that uh, misconception that all veterans vote conservative is part of the reason why people don't engage us is because they figure uh, if if you're a conservative, you figure, well, we've got them wrapped up anyways, or sewn up uh, as a vote. And if you're, uh, uh, let's say, the NDP or some other uh, progressive party, you're saying, well, they're a lost cause. They're not going to support us anyways. Yeah,
1: it's, uh, it, it is odd. Now, obviously, you know, in the 20th century, the Royal Canadian Legion functioned as this place where veterans met each other, people met veterans, there was this sense of veteran culture is a place we can check in with here. Obviously, there's been significant decline in the number of Legion branches, the number of Legion members, and um, Uh, There's been this dramatic fall off of the poppy as a symbol and its use. That used to be part of our checking in with veterans. Um, If courageous or curious people wanted to look, where does one go to, um, to engage with uh, veterans as a group today?
0: Well, you'd be hard pressed to do that because the Legion, uh, and I have been a member of the Legion in the past, but the, the Legion does not represent veterans uh, the way it used to. In fact, uh, the vast majority of, if, if you walk into a Legion branch anywhere in Canada and there's a hundred people there, probably about two or three of them are veterans. Like it's That's just from my experience. It It is not a veterans organization anymore. It doesn't speak. It doesn't speak for me, at least uh, there are some smaller groups. There's a, uh, a NATO UN veterans group, there's, uh, there's a few others that you actually need to be a veteran to join, like the Legion, basically anyone can join. Um, but really, that's, that's part of the problem with organizing veterans or, or, or connecting with them, at least on mass, is that we're all kind of, um, you know, for, for in, in many ways, we're, we're kind of fragmented and isolated. And there isn't that coalescing force that perhaps back in the, let's say, the seventies or eighties, when there were still, you know, loads of, of second world war veterans that, 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 that it was back then.
1: Yeah. It, it, yeah. I would say there's a real break between the 20th and 21st centuries. There are so many things that have changed in this century. And I feel like, especially those of us who got politically active early, there's this need to remind ourselves that we are not organizing in the century that we learned to organize it, that, that this is a very different, this is a very different political space than, and people don't share the same assumptions uh, from the 20th century. And I noticed this with um, trying to assemble people on the left or people who are socialists who are not identitarians who are not part of this woke orthodoxy and I noticed that we're old uh that um there are some really sharp really brilliant voices like Hannah Barale, who's you know lesbian in her 20s who is you know teaching basic Marxism on TikTok to kids who've never heard of any of it and uh, that sort of thing but people like Hannah are are the exception. And I feel like we spend, and I know I spend a lot of time being critical of uh, parties, groups that don't reach the people that we wanna reach. And I'm interested in your perspective on, um, uh, on how we're doing generationally um what what hope who we should be focusing on recognizing that we're nearly a quarter of the way through the 21st century and um and sort of wondering what what are the what are we what do we keep running up against that um people like sanders were able to vault over for a while or people like Corbyn were able to vault over for a while. I haven't seen a a real socialist connect with young people in this country. And I, I wonder what your thoughts on that are.
0: Well, I think the, the fixation on social media is, uh, is part of the problem Stuart. because, you know, um, I reviewed a book for uh, Canadian dimension uh, maybe about a year ago. By a guy named Paul Embry in the UK, and it was called "Does the or Does the Does the Left Hate the Working Class?" And what the best thing he said in that book? It's a good book, and I would recommend it. It's, it's it. He he says, "Don't mistake Twitter for the country," and that's that's what we're doing. When when some you know when some Twitter activist. Uh, denounces people as, as uh, racist or transphobic or, or what have you. And everyone piles on and, and says all these you know things and tries to Th- that's not the real world. and that's not a reflection of how most people think. Um, and you see people, well, look at Jack Singh. I mean, he's been so wrapped up in his digital bubble, that he's tagging, um, companies that gave, gave him a a rocking chair. Uh, you know, he's, he's doing basically, uh, you know, he's become a social media influencer. He's, he's laying in a bathtub with water pouring on him with a sign. He's, he's doing all these strange, bizarre things on TikTok, which, you know what, he might get a lot of likes, he might get shares and he might get, uh, you know, social media credibility on that. He's not getting any votes. He's, he's not getting any, any more seats. He's, you know, it, it's not, it, it's so ethereal. Um, I think you need to, and, and COVID hurts the, our ability to get out and talk to people and to have large gatherings. But I think we've got to get back to basics and forget uh, trying to get as many, uh, likes and shares as possible, and try to get as many uh, membership cards signed and as many votes uh, in the ballot box and as many seats won as possible. That's the only way. And most people are still open to that. I firmly believe that. So in
1: a way, we've stereotyped young people by imagining that they are social media. That that somehow Twitter and uh, Twitter is the inc- or TikTok is the incarnation of young people, rather than actually going and finding them.
0: I think there's a there's a certain truth to that, as there is with most stereotypes. But it's not, uh, you know, it's not universal. They have lives outside of their phones. I I firmly believe that. Um, and, and I have, you know, you, I, I have faith in the youth and, and they've used technology in wonderful ways. I mean, you look at some of the ways that they've, uh, you know, used it to, uh, um, you know, to shut down certain, uh, hateful elements online and they've used it, you know, I mean, some cancellations are, cancellations are, are good if you're canceling someone who's truly, uh, uh, you know, racist or truly advocating, uh, violence or something like that. Um, they've done it to support, uh, you know, unionized workers that were on strike or people trying to to unionize. So, um, I'm, I am frustrated. I am jaded. I am a little pessimistic, but I do have faith in humanity because I'm a humanist and that's really uh you know all I've got left to grab onto is is that belief that we'll come to our senses and embrace uh humanism and egalitarianism and 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 realize that we truly are all in this together. Well, that's a superb note to go out on.
1: Uh I I can't think of a better way to end the end the broadcast. Thank you so much, Scott. This has been a this has been a very good hour.
0: I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, Stuart. I can't run no more with that lawless crowd. While the killers in high places say their prayers out loud. But they've summoned, they've summoned up
1: a thundercloud. They're gonna hear from me. This has been a broadcast of Cocktail Hour with Stuart Parker. If you're interested in this kind of content, do please consider joining my institute, Los Altos Institute. You can find them on the web at losaltos.ca. If you're interested in more of my opinions on issues of the day, consider becoming a regular reader of StuartParker.ca, the blog where I post a number of my more developed sociopolitical ideas. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon.